always feels funny to come back inside, doesn't it? Beautiful as this hall is, as accessible to nature as it is, it doesn't quite feel the same as being under the bays and the oaks and feeling the breeze. So this evening I want to talk about um, some things which hopefully will become clear as I talk about them. I partly want to talk about the paradox of where we live, where we stand as humans, where we both live this very incarnate, embodied, human, mortal form that's very rooted to the body, to the earth, to the mind, to the particular, to the mundane, to the details of our lives and our history and our experience. But that we also have access to a much different reality that's more open and spacious, that's more in touch with the divine, with the sacred, with the mystery, with a deeper purpose, a deeper longing, a deeper connection with something vaster and more mysterious than the ordinary and everyday of our lives and our computers and And we weave our lives, weave in and out of those two seeming poles. I'm sure you've had the experience just on this retreat, sitting quietly out there in the meadow or wherever you've been meditating, and just feeling very still, connected, at one with things. And then you will go back down and to your room or the dining room and they've run out of a certain food that you want and suddenly you become contracted. You know, you go to the you go into your room and you're looking in the mirror and there's like, oh God, I've got a new wrinkle there. Wow. You know, we go from the boundless to the very particular very quickly. And they're very contracted and constricted. In all kinds of other ways we, we, we do this dance, this ebb and flow from expansion, connection, looking up at the stars at night, walking out of here. I always feel touched by that when I walk outside at night and just that blaze of stars in the darkness. And it just immediately connects us with something vast. And I might go from that into the teacher room and pick up my voicemail messages and suddenly my life comes crashing in and my schedule or whatever is banging on the door. So, I think part of Dharma practice and religious traditions in general is, 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 a, is an attempt to understand and to navigate this journey, this dance. How do we hold both realities? How do we 
how do we both live with care and connection of the particular, with our relationships and our body and the world, and yet how do we also uh, stay connected with the bigger picture, the bigger view? And what's interesting is we often long for that larger, vaster, more spacious realm, and yet we often, so often choose to be bound, to be particular, to be caught in the busyness of our minds and our lives and create complexity and create sort of um, snares and bondage to, to that somewhat smaller life. So, um, unlike the rest of you, I um, sneaked out of the retreat yesterday uh, to go see Mary Oliver, who has been uh, a lifelong um, inspiration for me. I've never seen her live, reading her poems, and she's uh, a rare visit to the Bay Area. So I, um, I bowed out reluctant as I was to leave the retreat. I uh, wanted to sort of bow to one of my gurus, really, um, who speaks so beautifully to uh, relationship to nature. And um, so I'm going to share a poem uh, which speaks to this theme. It's one of my favorite poems um, of being touched and being taken to some, some vaster realms. It's called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. And I thought I'd read this because we We've been serenaded so beautifully by the thrushes and the wrens. And It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain, rising and in fact it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All of them, all of them were singing, and of course so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door. Fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. I just thought it's perfect that she's talking about thrushes and here they are calling us. Almost feels transcendent sometimes to hear that song lilting out of the silence. So, so here we are living in this, in this world of seeming duality, 
vastness, the particular, and you know, spiritual teachings throughout the ages have been helping us see more clearly to understand and navigate this seeming paradox. And often what they're saying, uh, particularly in the Buddhist tradition uh, that I'm more familiar with, is they're reminding us to see that who we are is not limited to this small, narrow, particular, to the mind, the busy mind, the thinking mind that so likes to create our reality. It's encouraging us to see that there's something, there's a way of seeing, understanding who and what we are that's vaster, more mysterious. Nisargadatta, wonderful Advaita Vedanta teacher, puts it this way. He says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing and love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Out of the nothingness comes fullness, comes expression, comes love. Kala Rinpoche, in a similar vein, puts it this way. There is a reality and you are that reality. When you realize this, you see that you are nothing and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So I'm sure all of you in your own ways in different places and times have touched something, touched what Mary Oliver was perhaps pointing to or what these teachers are pointing to, where we perhaps break out of that sense of being bound and see, see, get a sense of a more boundless, more open, spacious. Or sometimes when reality, life comes crashing in with, in, with a loss of death of a beloved, uh, grief, uh, near-death experience, some shock in, in our life, some, something comes out of the blue and it sort of wakes us up to the fragility, to the impermanence, to the, to the delicacy and the vulnerability of life. And we see, we perhaps stretch out of our habitual way of seeing things. So tonight I want to read something, it's a transcript from uh, a, a, a documentary that was going around the web from the TED conference uh, called The Stroke of Insight. How many people saw that, Stroke of Insight? A few. So um, I have a transcript of the, of the, the, the um, it was a 20-minute talk that Dr. Jill Taylor, who is a, um, uh, I forget the technical name, but she's a brain scientist, neural anatomist, uh, who um, uh, went through a, a stroke, a left brain stroke, and she uh, chronicles what happened to her, and it's a really uh, fascinating and illuminating uh, piece of experience and writing about how, how the stroke, you know, she's a brain scientist, so she's fascinated by the brain, here she's having a stroke and she, she's tracking it, and so she describes her experience. On the morning of my stroke, I woke up with a pounding pain behind my left eye. It was the kind of caustic pain you get when you bite into ice cream. It just gripped me and released me, and it gripped me and released me. I'm standing in my bathroom, and I'm getting ready to step into my shower, and I can actually hear the dialogue on the inside of my body. I heard a little voice say, okay, you muscles, you need to contract, and you muscles need to relax. 
and I lost my balance and I'm propped up against the wall and I look, I look down at my arm and I realize that I can no longer define the boundaries of my body. I can't define where I begin and where I end because the atoms and the molecules of my arm blended with the atoms and the molecules of the wall. All I could detect was this energy and I'm asking myself, what is wrong with me? What's going on here? And in that moment, my left hemisphere brain chatter went totally silent, just like someone took a remote control and pushed the mute button. Total silence. And I was shocked to find myself inside of a silent mind. But then I was immediately captivated, captivated by the magnificence of the energy around me because I could no longer, no longer identify the boundaries of my body and I felt enormous and expansive. I felt at one with all the energy that was, and it was beautiful there. And then all of a sudden, my left hemisphere comes back online and says, and it says to me, get dressed. I've got to get to work. I've got to get to work, but how can I drive? And in that moment, my right arm went totally paralyzed by my side. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. And the next thing my brain says to me is, wow, how cool is this? This is so cool. How many brain scientists have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside out? And it crosses my mind as my left brain kicks into gear, but I'm a very busy woman. I don't have time for a stroke. <laughs> it's like, okay, I can't stop the stroke from happening, so I'll do this for a week, and then I'll get on back to my business. So I've got to call for help. I've got to call work. So I remember in my office, I had a business card with my name and number on it, and she goes on to describe how she, can't, she, gets, she gets all the business cards and she can't understand the words because it's all just pixels and light and color and shape. So she goes through a long, laborious process of uh, deciphering and dialing. And Eventually, the whole number gets dialed, and I'm listening to the phone, and my, my, college, my colleague picks up the phone and says to me, and I think to myself, oh my gosh, he sounds like a golden retriever. <laughs> So I, say, so I say to him, I'm clear in my mind. I say to him, this is Jill. I need help. But what comes out of my voice is... And I say to myself, oh my gosh, I sound like a golden retriever. And I did not know that I could not speak or understand language until I tried. So he recognizes that I need help, and he gets me some help. A little while later, I'm riding in an ambulance from one hospital across Boston to Mass General. And I curl up in a fetal ball, just like a balloon with the last bit of air just right out of the balloon. I just felt my energy leave, and I felt my spirit surrender in that moment, and I, knew, and I knew that I was no longer the choreographer of my life. And either the doctors rescued my body and gave me a second chance at life, or this was perhaps my moment of transition. When I woke later that afternoon, I was shocked to discover that I was still alive. When I felt my spirit surrender, I said goodbye to my life, and my mind was suspended between two very opposite planes of reality. I just wanted to escape because I could not identify the position of my body in space. I felt enormous and expansive like a genie just liberated from the bottle. My spirit soared free like a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria. Nirvana, I thought. I found Nirvana. And I remember thinking, there was no way I'd ever be able to squeeze the enormousness of myself back into this tiny little body. But then I realized, but I'm still alive. I'm still alive, and I found nirvana. And if I'm still alive, then everybody who is alive can find nirvana. I pictured a world filled with beautiful, peaceful, compassionate, loving people. 
I knew that if I could come to this place, come to this space anytime, that they could also purposely choose to step to the right of their left hemispheres and find this peace. Then I realized what a tremendous gift this experience could be, what a stroke of insight this could be to know how we could live our lives and be motivated to recover. So it took her eight years to recover, and then she asked the question, who are we? We're the life force of the universe with manual dexterity and two cognitive minds. We have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world. Right here, right now, I can step into consciousness of my right hemisphere where we are. And there I am the life force and the power of the universe. I am the life force, the 50 trillion beautiful molecular geniuses that make up my form, at one with all it is. Or I can choose to step into, into the consciousness of my left hemisphere where I become a single individual, a solid, separate, person, separate from the flow, separate from you. I am still Dr. Jill Taylor, intellectual neural anatomist. These are the weeds inside of me. Which would you choose? Which do you choose? And when? I believe that the more we spend choosing to run the deep inner peace circuitry of our right hemisphere, that the more peace we will project into the world and the more peacefulness our planet will be. And I thought that was an idea worth spreading. I encourage you to go online after the retreat and, and watch it. It's really amazing to see her deliver her, her life, you know, that, that eight years of processing. But what's amazing is how similar it is to, to Buddhist understanding, the understanding of the small separate self with its busy mind that's controlling and fearful and scarce, and then this more expansive open awareness more rest at ease in the nature of things, spacious, open, allowing. And she asked some inter- interesting questions about who are we? And, how, and, and what do we choose if in, if, in fact, we have a choice? And that's an important question. And we do have these, they said, both these, these two realities that we gravitate in. Mostly we hang out in what she's calling the left brain hemisphere. And we spend a lot of time longing to hang out in the right hemisphere. Rumi's poetry of the longing for the friend, for the beloved, is that, is that similar dance of moving in and out from left to right, a way of understanding that dance. He says, out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about, too full to talk about ideas and language. Even the phrase, each other, doesn't make sense. So I thought we'd do a little exercise. So um, close your eyes. Just sit how you are. You don't need to change your posture. And I want you to say internally, I'm going to say a a sentence made of six words, I am a meditator sitting here. 
I am a meditator sitting here. Just feel into that. And then take off the last word. So you have, I am a meditator sitting. Now take off the word sitting. I am a meditator. Now let go of the word meditator. I am a. Feel into that. Now let go of the word a and just sit with the I am. Now remove the word am. Just sit with the word I. Now remove the eye. <coughs> Notice what's there. And you can open your eyes. Anybody want to say in a couple of words what you noticed? You just shout out. I had an immediate uh, image of a Chagall painting um, when you eliminated the I. In other words, it felt like, um, I mean, I, I don't know how much I got connected to it, but I certainly felt this kind of um, overarching um, sphere Nice Chagall image of floating into the sky. Anybody else? Just a, a word or two. Just any sense you're left with? Space. Space. I grew a little bit with each word you took off. You grew a bit with each word you took off. Yeah. Nothingness. Nothingness. Peace. Peace. So it's interesting when we remove those very simple constructs, words, concepts, ideas, we actually let them go. Even for a moment, it takes us into a vaster sense of knowing, space, peace, freedom less bound. And those moments are significant when we touch those. We're either, we touch those when we're, pra- when we're meditating, we touch those sitting out in nature. And then we often spend a lot of time trying to get back to them. Oh, that was such an amazing moment. And we often try to manipulate our experience. How was I sitting? What did I eat? You know, where was I, you know, as if it can be recreated by the mind and that 
there's the, the very fact that the mind, the thinking mind, the left brain had momentarily become quiet that allows a little greater depth of perception. I think it's why so many people are drawn to being in nature, because I think in nature allows that part of the busy mind to quieten a little, to relax. So it's become a little more receptive, a little more open, without so much effort. I often hear when doing these nature retreats that requires less effort to meditate, and presence is more accessible. And to be touched by wonder or mystery is more available. Even when people go, when I hear people going fishing or hunting or mountain climbing, you know, often it's not, it's not about the fish. You know, most hunters rarely actually get anything, but they spend hours and hours and hours in silence and stillness outdoors. This is from a meditation student I met at IMS in the East Coast. Kate, a meditation student, told me of an experience she had after returning home from a mindfulness retreat. She was drawn to go alone to the pond where she often tramps with her dogs and kids. She scrambled up the rocks and sat amidst the trees, gazing in solitude at the pond. She recounts, before I knew it, I was drawn into stillness. It was so much easier to feel the tranquility being on my own. The trees softly blowing in the wind began to wave in unison with my breath. Suddenly there was no inside or outside. Nothing anywhere felt separate. We, the universe, I, were breathing together, alive and pulsating. The trees danced and sang and kept playing with me. The experience probably only lasted a few minutes, though it lives with me always. So I want to talk a little more about um, seeing the world through the perspective first of the left brain and then from the right. A little more familiar with the left brain. It's the mind that we're always noticing when we're meditating. It's the mind that's planning, that's restless, that's agitated, that's trying to control, trying to fix, trying to problem solve. It's, it's the It's the survival machinery, as Wes has been talking about, that really has helped us navigate through life and helps us, you know, fill in applications and drive a car and work out how to work the video remote. And it's always involved in, not always, often involved in planning, in time, lives in a linear time, understanding the present through association with the past, planning and scheming, preparing for the future. Rarely content to just settle in the present. It's the part of the mind that's always wanting to get somewhere and be somebody, to get ahead, to become something. As Lily Tomlin once said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. So it's a part of the mind that's in survival mode, that's often fear-based, scarcity-based, doesn't have so much trust, that this is the part of the mind that never feels like it, we have enough. 
I once went into a client's company. It was a hedge fund, and um, I was doing some mindfulness training with some of the the guys who worked there. And uh, I went in one day, and there was a particularly happy vibe going around the office. And I I asked somebody what, what what's going on. They must have had a good day. And they said, oh yeah, our trader made a particularly good trade today and made 50 million for the company. I thought, wow. And I was seeing this particular trader later in the day, so I thought I was expecting to see a really happy guy. So we, I get to see him, and he's looking really anxious and distressed and, uh, and stressed. And I said, what's going on? You just made this amazing trade and made the company a lot of money and everybody else a lot of money. I thought you'd be really happy. He said, well, yeah, you know, I could have bought a little earlier, and if I'd only hold on a few more hours, I would have made a few more million. <laughs> That's the left brain at work. You know, brilliant, and yet holding on. It's not quite enough. Never at peace. Nisargadatta says, there's no such thing as peace of mind. Mind means disturbance. Restlessness itself is mind. It's the mind that thinks 60, 70,000 thoughts a day, according to one study. It's about one thought a second. So if you're wondering why you're thinking so many thoughts, it's what we do. It's what we recognize when we sit. Oh, how much we're thinking, how much we're lost in thought. Now, practice is to cultivate the awareness to not be so gripped and lost in the world of our mind, the world of thought. It's not to get rid of thought. Thought's not a problem. We use thought, but we don't need to be enslaved by it. We don't need to be driven by it. And the more that we come to rest in awareness and mindfulness, we get to see that the thoughts are just passing visitors. They're not who we are. They arise unbidden. They pass away unbidden. They're mysterious. You know, when you sit back and just watch this process is very ephemeral, flickering phenomena that, you know, when we turn our attention to it, it mostly is transparent. Try to look at a thought, and where is it? It's very intangible. It mostly slips away before we can really even see it. And yet it has tremendous power. We're mostly in the grip of our thoughts, our ideas, our concepts, our views, our opinions, our beliefs. You think about all the people on this retreat, mostly whom you don't know. And how many views and opinions and ideas do you have about the people here? Probably a lot, right? Even though we have no idea what language they speak, what country they're from, you know, the mind still, start, you know, it's the, way, it's the way it likes to make sense of the world. It has a place, and also we get lost in it when we believe it to be ultimately true. This is from Byron Katie. If I can find it. Mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. I live in a completeness, all of us do, though we may not realize it. I don't know anything. I don't have to figure anything out. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere, and now I exist as a don't-know mind. This leaves nothing but peace and joy in my life. 
And that doesn't mean to say that she's gone stupid. She's a very brilliant, articulate woman, but she's seen through the, the power of being caught in the grip of that thinking mind. Which begs the question, if we take so much of our identity from our thoughts, from, from our views, from our ideas, if we cease identifying with that part of ourselves as who we are, then who are we? Who are we if we're not our thoughts, if we're not that mind? This is from Shabkar Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher from 17th century. Now come up and close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It's primordially empty. There's nothing to hold on to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or color. And in, in the end, nowhere to go. There's no trace of its having been by. Its movements are empty. But that emptiness is apparent. In the beginning, mind itself is not created by causes and finally not destroyed by external conditions. It neither grows nor gets stuck, neither is empty or full. Infusing peace and anguish, it shows no preference. Ceaselessly, it reveals itself as everything, so you can't say here it is. Not being fixed as, not being fixed as something, it's beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, nor born nor dies illuminates no obscures. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, empty, radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. So when we dwell in what Jill Taylor was talking about, the right brain hemisphere more, it's a part of the mind that's not so functioning in linear time, that's not so... Uh, lost in the realms of past and future. It's the mind that we contact when we're sitting peacefully, either in meditation, outside, in our lives, where there's no resistance to what's happening. There's no complaining, no pushing, no struggling. And where there's a sense of connection, sense of, but also a sense of boundlessness, spaciousness, it's really what we spend a lot of our time looking for. In our lives, we spend a lot of time looking for the peace that's already residing right here in our own minds and hearts. When we cease to be controlled by the grip of the thinking mind. But often when we, when we hang out there, even for a few moments, you know, the thoughts might arise, the th thinking mind might arise, well, that's all very good, nirvana is very interesting, but what's for dinner? And what about paying the rent? And what about getting a job and getting on with your life? And I've heard people talking about that even on this retreat. You know, I was sitting in this really quiet, open space, and then you know, the mind starts getting agitated. It's not so comfortable hanging out in that unfamiliar place because it's not a very comfortable, familiar identity. 
we're used to being on task with a project and goals and plans and we like to know where we're going. So it leaves us with the question, if it is in question, of what do we choose? Why do we choose? It seems that we're choosing, even though it doesn't seem like we're choosing. There's an appearance of choosing to dwell, as she said, in more this left brain mode, linear, time-bound. And yet we have this uh, access to what she's calling nirvana, peace, openness, oneness. And it's not really a choice of either or. It's really we do live in both worlds. Coming to understand that both are important in the way we live and move through the world. We can't, get of our, we can't get rid of our egoic mind, as some spiritual teachings say. We need it to function, to move. To How would you answer your emails without your cognitive mind? And yet the trick is not to be so lost in the grip of it, to know that's not the only reality. I remember times in my, actually one, I remember one particular time when I was studying with a teacher called Punjaji in India. Uh, and um, there was a lot of right brain hemisphere soup, kind of a lot of hanging out in that very open, spacious, free place. Uh, had a very powerful, very powerful teacher, very clear, very strong sense of transmission, very beautiful, delightful, joyous to hang out with, and very illuminating. And um, it was a very, it felt like a very free time in my life and my practice. But I also remember, at the same time, um, feeling that sense of openness and spaciousness and freedom. I also remember my my personality didn't go away, and. I still want to get to the front of the line every morning to get the best seat in the house. And we're still, we're still very aware of all the neuroses that were bumbling around in my mind and heart and body. And sometimes I think there's a fear that when we drop into those moments of silent peace, presence, awakening, there's some fear that we won't be able to function we, won't be, we will lose touch with our everyday reality. And one thing that taught me was that we can have these very profound moments, just like Jill Taylor did, opening, whether it's through a stroke or through spiritual practice, hopefully it's through spiritual practice and not a stroke, Sometimes it just comes as a moment of grace. We weren't planning for it, weren't expecting it, weren't trying to produce anything.
what's really important about those moments, the moment himself is significant, but what, what's also significant is the effect that it has in terms of transforming who we are and the way we see the world. Because we can have many moments like that, but what's key from the, from the perspective of these teachings is that we, they bring about some kind of tran- transformation. There's a wonderful teaching from Korean Zen master Chinul, um, who talked about sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. That we have these moments of satori, of awakening, of insight, of illumination. But they take many years to actually understand and integrate into our lives and our practice. That that's where the work happens. So I'll just end with a few things about how we work with this in terms of in terms of our practice. Partly through mindfulness practice, we're, we're learning to work with it through through simply being aware, simply being attentive, simply knowing when we're lost in our mind, lost in thought, lost in planning, lost in projection, lost in story. And we're also learning to turn inward, to turn to turn to somewhere else other than that mind to look for truth. Not looking outward so much. To recognizing that peace is already here. That prior to the moment of looking for something somewhere, somewhere outside of ourselves, that it's actually already right here. There's this lovely piece I'll read a couple of lines from, from Gendon Rinpoche, where he says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it, like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever chasing, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, It always is available and accompanies you every instant. So another way of looking at it is these moments of illumination you can think of as sometimes uh, enlightenment's referred to as an accident and our practice is creating us, helping us be more accident-prone. So we're setting up the conditions, like we come here on retreat in silence, in stillness, in nature, as a way to support the mind opening. We can't force that. We can't force insight. We can't force... The mind would like to think we could force, but it actually happens through surrender, through letting go, trust, Almost relaxing into the mystery. So let's sit together for a couple of minutes.
It's a reading from Huang Po. Your true nature is something never lost to you even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of suchness. This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it, regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight and hearing, feeling and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of their own source substance. for your attention. So it's 8.19. We'll um, come back together at 8.45 for some sitting, some chanting, and close. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.